It's episode 123 of Offscript with Trish Close, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Zoom, we're shaking things up a little bit right now, Lynette Marrero. She is a award-winning bartender, mixologist, and philanthropist, along with a lot of other things. Hi, Lynette. How are you today? I'm great, you know, uh, spending a lot of time at home, getting a lot of projects done. <laughs> good. That's good. I think I want to say you're my first mixologist on this podcast. Oh, nice. Excellent. <laughs> and I'm not going to mince words. You're kind of a badass mixologist. Uh, I just am someone who loves my job. So I guess if that shows off in a uh, you know, badass array, then yes. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, before we get really get into it, I just want to let everybody know who's listening, this is how awesome you are. You've been honored by the James Beard Award as one of America's leading female mixologists in 2009. Which, why do we got to say female? Can't you just be a mixologist? You know what I mean? And it, it, we'll talk about it, but in 2009, okay. it was a very different time. <laughs> okay, you're, you're right, you're right. Also named Food and Wine and Fortune Magazine's most innovative women in food and drink in 2015 and wine enthusiast mixologist of the year in 2016. And you probably, a lot of people may have seen you on the ads that pop up on social media for the masterclass. I know they pop up on my feed occasionally because I tend to be a little bit of a booze hound. So, um, <laughs> so, so you pop up a lot there, which is really how I discovered you. And then I did some research and I just needed to know more. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, including the masterclass and how that started and this uh, being a, f a female mixologist in a male-dominated industry. But let's start from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Uh, so I am New Yorican. So that is someone of uh, Puerto Rican heritage, born in New York. We have our own style. There's definitely, um, you know, a different cultural influence about New York um, and you know, I think that is really the starting point of where my love of food and drink comes from. Um, you know, my mom was cooking all the time, flavor building from a young age. I think just by the way, the food has so much uh, seasoning. And so I think my palate was developed quite young. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's kind of what brought me to this. So really just knowing how much I loved putting things together uh, really brought me into the cocktail world. Uh, so it's kind of a you know, I don't think any, not many people, I mean, I think now there's definitely more people who know they're going to go in a culinary track in their lives. And, and now, uh, the elevating, like that you can go into the drinks world. Uh, mm -hmm. but I don't think it was really like a career, right? You were always, I'm going to be a bartender because I'm going to do something else. Um, and so it's great to see where the craft has elevated because there is such a breadth of different careers within just the the cocktail and drinks world, which has expanded now to everything from, you know, non-al cocktails mm -hmm. to other kinds of products. The beverage space is so vast and growing. So yeah. I'm really fortunate to be in this awesome time and place. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually have that question on here, how it evolved. But <laughs> I do want to go back to your mom. You were born and raised in New York City? Yeah. Okay. And so was she, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I come from a family where the kitchen was the center. Was that for you guys? Food? Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories was my mom uh, walking us down Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn and things like, you know, the barrels of pickles and the kosher delis or, you know, it was it. New York is such a melting pot and there's so much uh, cultural sharing, you know, in our neighborhood. It was Irish, Italians, uh, 
Jewish, Puerto Rican families. So you really kind of got this cultural uh, sharing. Um, but the kitchen always was the center place. It is the place where, you know, we as a family would sit down, we would taste mm-hmm. things, you know, you'd have to eat your food for sure. There was no being <laughs> picky or finicky. It was right. like, here's what's on the menu. Mom is not tailoring it for everyone. Uh, and then in summers, we would go to Puerto Rico and I would then spend time with my grandparents. And so that's where I would get tropical fruits, you know, that were growing on their their property and, and just more exploration of the cultural flavors. Um, so I think that just kind of really developed my palate. And then, you know, we moved to the suburbs and then I can, ran back to New York as quickly as possible because obviously to your point, raising four daughters in, in New York City gets pretty challenging for parents. Whoa. And we need a bigger table and a bigger kitchen. So <laughs> Four girls. Oh, your poor mama. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, my parents, my, my dad was outnumbered even with the dogs. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> the just, best. I. Exactly. I just grew up with a lot of uh, strong female presence in my life. But <laughs> yeah. Well, you also grew up in, in that environment. Different was normal. Mm-hmm. Right. Things that were different from you and your family with, you know, the Jewish community and all the different cultures oh, yeah. and different colors. I mean, you grew up with diversity, which a, a lot of people say we can't say that. Well, no, it's it's true. I think what's interesting about I think why I love New York so much is because, you know, it retains so many waves of people coming to, you know, to America, the port of entry. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, New York has those neighborhoods where you really can go and experience, you know, one of my favorite places, which I go back all the time is there's a whole section on Lexington Avenue in the 20s. That is where you can find all of your um, Pakistani ingredients, Middle Eastern ingredients. There's just these shops where I'm exposed to spices, flavors, and I have access to it. Um, mm-hmm. So that access to uh, just the different flavors really, I think, also helps, again, with with being inspired for drinking. And, like, every bartender or chef goes to, like, this one place called Calustians because it's, like, floors and floors of every single crazy thing you can imagine um, and even some molecular things you need, like tartaric acid or right. things like that. So. There's just, but you can find, you're like, oh yeah, I can find three different types of cardamom. I don't need to just find one. And that's, I think, opening up your self to a range of flavors. And, and that is a pretty wonderful uh, part of, of being lucky enough to grow up here. Right. Did you go to high school in the burbs or in the city? Oh no, we went to the burbs. My, <laughs> it was the burbs and Catholic schools. My dad was <laughs> definitely on a track. He's like, all right, four daughters, here we go. <laughs> Whatever control I can can make. But I came back to New York and attended Columbia University. Um, so I was living up in you know the North Harlem area, I guess, or South Soha is what we were calling it then, South Harlem. And then you know we'd have access to in north and south so again you could just hop on yeah on the one train from school and be in whatever neighborhood you need to be so pretty accessible um but that again was just kind of a great um opportunity um to have just so many people coming from so many places uh and you know university for me was a place you know i really love studying uh and i actually studied psychology there with and also acting so i kind of had this like very interesting degree and all things that i think have actually you know really helped in my career and things that are really useful i think understanding people and how they think and hospitality is really important mm-hmm. and how you react within those spaces uh so i think I, I rely on a lot of the training that i had 
um, from from college, and I just I just loved it. You know, for me, there was something so beautiful about being again in a place that is surrounded by so many diverse cultures. Uh, I wasn't quite ready to go to uh, and like NYU was on my list, but I was like, you know what? It's too much in the middle of everything I wanted campus and college and mm. have that kind of best of both worlds. So I was really happy to kind of have uh, Columbia as that place of growth and. And right. I never went home. I was like, I was there. I would stay through the summers. I would work and, you know, take extra classes and, and work on my craft at the time and audition and do everything that, you know, I was like, I'm going to rough it out. And summers were hard in New York, but mm -hmm. you, you know, you've kind of, it was a lot of building blocks of, you know, and that's what kind of got me into hospitality um, careers. You would be there in the summer. I'm like, all right, well, what am I going to work in? Said work in you know, retail sales at the the musicals, like the theaters in, in Broadway. And I would meet then a bunch of other people who are from so many different backgrounds. So there was just a lot of meeting and soaking in all of the things that I could. Well, you hear that too when, uh, especially whether it's, you know, the wine field or a mixologist, when you get that job in the restaurant and you start to really experiment with hospitality and drink me, you get hooked if that's what you're meant to do, right? <laughs> it's like the bug bites you and you're, you're thinking to yourself, you keep going back and looking for jobs like that. Did that happen for you? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was, you know, I, I always did, I really tried not to be the cliche waiter actor, like to me, I was like, <laughs> don't do that. So I found hospitality in other places, you know, so working, uh, a lot of the theaters that I worked for were Disney theatrical, uh, I even actually, got a gig as uh, Julie Tamer's assistant when she was doing the workshop for The Lion King. So I'll, everything that Disney was teaching me was hospitality. You sure. Know, like that is their, that is their, you know, whatever they're doing, hospitality is a part of it mm -hmm. and a part of their culture. And then it was so easy to translate that mm -hmm. when I finally did decide that I was going to, you know, much my first job was at a wine bar with a global wine list, which I loved. Again, it was just something that I was learning so much. And, you know, I just took a lot of those same principles. I'm like, you just translate that skill set. Yeah. I think that's important right now, too, because I think, you know, right now with where hospitality is and with everything that's going on, you know, there are all going to be a lot of people who have been, you know, investing careers in hospitality and food and beverage who may choose to go to a different career and knowing that they have built a bunch of skill sets that translate to other fields. Um, I think that's kind of like, that to me is a great thing to, to look at and, and see is that these skills can be transferred to other places. You know, we'll have, it'll be a, a comeback time. And, and I think, you know, with the restaurants, some restaurants and bars closing, there might be less opportunities. So, you know, we have to get other, bring all of these people into other parts of, you know, the economic system. And that will be like, hey, you have skill sets, you know, to do a lot of things, not just building drinks and, right. you know, cooking in a kitchen, teach you a lot of things about team building, um, front of house, you're learning a lot about sales. So I've seen a, quite a few people transition during this time or take extra classes just for other things to supplement their income. And I'm like, they're gonna be super successful because they learned so much on the job. Absolutely, um, but and even psychology and acting, I feel like that really did set you <laughs> up for what you're doing now, right? It did, it totally did. I mean. Like I said, you know, people in hospitality, there's so many different reasons why people go out uh, and enjoy a meal and enjoy a moment. And there's kind of a bit of, you know, finding social cues when you're working, you know, to give that experience. You know, some guests want to sit at your bar mm -hmm. and want to learn everything about your back bar and 
you know, that is their sense of community, especially like in New York where people are in small places mm -hmm. and, and, you know, restaurants and bars are a place for them to have community. So being sensitive to that and knowing who the people are that need a little more engagement. And then there's, you know, taking the social cues of, of the people who want to come in, kind of have their time to their crossword <laughs> and not be bothered. So you're constantly picking up the clues and, and, and understanding what, you know, giving and taking with, with what's going on um, yeah. from your guests. But and that I, I love that. I love when you get to um, forge those relationships and, and be able to just be that person for somebody. I think that's why New York's hospitality has such a community because we mm -hmm. are people coming from all these small places thrown together in this, you know, in this city and it's community. I feel I really do feel that bars and restaurants become communities. I, I agree. And one of my favorite places is bellying up to the bar and watching <laughs> watching the bartender. That's theater in a sense. Totally. It's like you watch the process, you see yeah. the organization. Yes. Um and and those are also some skill sets, right? So you're learning so many things about maison plaza, where things go, how to be organized, right. you know, <laughs> probably so many different things you can learn about putting things in their proper place. Uh, I know. So, um, Those childhood and that, lessons. And that's a big skill set. Yeah. <laughs> they are. Right? And also, by the way, qu quick math too, because, you know, you sit there and have, uh, <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, I'm making multiples of drinks and I have my jigger and you're just like adding up ounces and you're, so yep. you learn very quick math and multiples and go Perfect. on a on a quick basis. But you know, there's also strong communication skill sets. You know, you have a team. You know, between bartenders and the barbacks and servers. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of nonverbal communication that happens. Mm -hmm. So again, to your point, lots of you know understanding clues from other people, seeing what's going on, observing, and then being able to pivot and, and interact um, your pace or what you need to do to kind of help the team is, is something else that comes yeah. up. I, and again, it's, uh, I'm the nerd who's going, wait, what did you just put into that drink? Because it's a little education for me too, just as a person who likes to make cocktails at home, I'm learning too when I just go out, out and have a drink at the bar, which I so badly miss. I miss that so much. I know. I miss I miss kind of the direct feedback, right? Yeah. So like here's the part of it that's, you know, you're presenting your art to somebody yes. and you're getting instant feedback. And that that feeling of like gratification when yes. you make that drink for somebody, especially when, when they're like, I'm not sure what I want, but these are sorts of flavors I, I really enjoy. And you dial it in and you present them something that you just created. And that moment is just kind of, I, I do miss that point of contact. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's we're trying a, as much as we can virtually, but it's it's it doesn't replace human contact, but we're doing the best we can. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a hair flip moment, isn't it? When you're just like, oh, you don't like whiskey and I just made you a drink that you love? <laughs> hmm, go me. 100%, that right? is totally it. And I and that's, that's the thing, right? So there's always that uh, learning to build trust, saying, hey, I'm going to try and make you something, you, you know, if you don't really don't like it. And there's a little bit of like investigative journalism too, a little <laughs> bit when you're talking to a guest, because you're like trying to read between the lines of why they don't like something. Right. You know, because they'll say they don't like something. And oftentimes that's either tied to like a bad experience, mm -hmm. unbalanced drink, or actually something else that was completely in there that didn't even relate to that big spirit. Like it may not be that they don't like bourbon drinks. They might just not like want like just an old fashioned, which is really boozy. They might want to mix whiskey in different ways. And mm -hmm. you have to kind of pick a little bit and find out. And then you go ahead and take those clues and hopefully are successful. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Was there a point in your path where all of this started for you? 
I, I wrote down New York City's Flatiron lo- Lounge, but was that yes. was that the point for you where it started? That was the place where I knew I was going to take this and build a deeper okay. career. Um, I had worked, um, my first job was at a wine bar on Clinton Street called Punch and Judy. And it was after 9-11, I had previously been temping in offices, decided I was never gonna work in an office again. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna have to figure out this waiter thing and <laughs> let's try it out. I ended up working there. Um, and like I said, it was a global wine list. You know, there was some, you know, it just really intrigued me. There was just so much to learn, especially, you know, just even learning about just starting with Italian wine. I was like, there's so much to learn about yeah. the way they call the grapes. And and so I was immediately intrigued and knew that there was lots of continued learning to have. And I was really lucky in that place to, you know, meet people who would become friends in this industry for a very long time and, and their ventures in hospitality. Um, and so that was great. And then I started working at um, a place cross town from Flatiron called Sabar, which was kind of like, you know, this very much martini lounge at the time. And it was a pretty busy bar and just didn't even realize naturally they had a lot of women working there. And uh, there was one guy and he was the nephew of the general manager. And so he was, he was there, poor Dane had, had all of the, all these strong women like <laughs> bartending around him and doing everything and he could handle it. He was definitely not intimidating. He was just chilling because uh, his mom comes from a big family <laughs> and um, with lots of strong women. So we were, you know, that's where I found kind of some camaraderie with uh, with women in the industry, mm. um, you know, who were willing to invest in each other and say, hey, you know, you're a server, but do you want to start picking up some bartending? Um, so one of the bartenders there, Amber, would start teaching me after our shift on Thursday. And then we'd go for a nightcap at the newly opened Flatiron Lounge. And that was kind of our process. And that's where I met Julie Reiner and her wife, Susan, and uh, Michelle Connolly, who were the three women who were running the place. And it was just kind of incredible. And it was just really a beautiful space, lots of things that were just so intriguing, um, the flavors, the freshness of uh, the juices. And, and I just kind of fell in love with it from a culinary mm-hmm. standpoint, and then kind of stocked the stocked it for a year till I uh, got a job there. <laughs> so I was like applying, applying. A year later, I, I got a job there. And then that was where I just had an opportunity to hone my craft, start learning. And, and the process there that I kind of really attribute to why it was so great was that, again, I had an opportunity to learn because they would do a flight of the day. And the mm. flight of the day would be, you know, either three classic cocktails or three cocktails with a theme. And so what I learned, obviously, in sales and hospitality was like, know as much about all those things if I'm going to authentically offer them to my guests. So I would ask all the questions, what's in this drink? Why are we, you know, and I would just ask the deeper questions and write down the specs for them, just like, well, I want to know. And that kind of what I realized after, you know, working there for a bit was that I started understanding I was learning the the bartending, I was learning the drinks. Mm. So when there were uh, shifts where it was just one server and a bartender, I'd be able to hop back and help. And then, you know, I had some advocates on the team who were like, Lynette needs to be trained to be a bartender. So they did. And so I, I just kind of jumped in and then it, my career kind of took off in this industry. Took so off. I was I was constantly balancing it for a few years of, you know, traveling and doing shows and coming back to hospitality. And then I you know, made the choice. I was like, you know, I really want to invest in this career and I want to do events in in the spirits world. I thought at that time, especially 
met the, you know, the cocktails you'd get because all my friends were starting to get married. You know, all the cocktails you'd get at the weddings were awful. And you're like, what? Well, I work at a good bar, so why can't I get a good cocktail at a mm-hmm. wedding? So I started a small cocktail catering company. Uh, and then I start, that kind of led me to starting to help uh, different brands launch and, and run their events and have mm-hmm. better cocktails at those kind of engagements. It feels like just reading about you, that happened really fast. Do you feel that way? Pretty quick. Okay. Yeah, it, for, for sure. I was... I had an opportunity uh, because I mean, Flatiron Lounge was part of that early core of really, you know, important cocktail bars coming back to New York. Mm -hmm. Milk and Honey was one, but Milk and Honey was a speakeasy. So it could only have, you know, maybe 20 people at a time, but Flatiron was jam packed and it was bringing this culture of craft cocktails to a lot of people. And so they needed more staff. And so training up and getting the opportunities were there just was more opportunities. So I was able to kind of pick up and learn and then start picking up jobs at restaurant bars who also wanted to have good cocktail programs. So I was really fortunate to be able to build my resume pretty quickly um, and jump into them even consulting like that happened within three years of me really starting to pick up the stick. And that's a pretty fast trajectory. What do you think it is about you specifically that that happened? Was it your talent? Was it your tenacity? Was it all of these things that you brought to the table? Because I do think there was a point, and I wanted to ask you about this, where bartenders went from bartenders to being mixologists, where there's a science behind mm-hmm. it. You're not just slinging booze behind the bar. You're actually, there's thought and um, purpose in what you're doing. So what was it about you, do you think, that propelled you on this path? Um, you know, I stayed open and I really observed a lot. Um, I also came with a, a skill set of understanding being accountable and, and mm. taking opportunities. You know, I wasn't the bartender who would, you know, work till 4 a.m., sleep till noon, miss like all these opportunities. I was a go-getter. I was up early. You weren't complacent. You know, I, like, I may be tired. <laughs> no. Yeah, you weren't like, complacent. I'll get up. I'll check my emails. I'll respond back. If mm. I need to take a nap later, I will. So, and also just the need to keep experiencing, you know, wanting to just, you know, I didn't want to just work and have it just be a job. I'm like, well, what else can I learn from this? Well, how else can this help me just keep moving forward in life? And and that yeah. was, that's just kind of a personality trait that I have. And I think I always said that it's like opportunity presented itself to me because I'd wake, literally it was just waking up. If I just woke up earlier than every other bartender, when someone's emailing, looking for someone to do an art, you know, can you contribute to an article? Can you do this or that? I jumped at those opportunities very quickly. Um, I interviewed someone. She's actually a free diving spear fishing woman. One of very, a a few in the entire world. Right. Um, But she was telling me when she started to get into that, she was sitting back and sort of watching these things happen to other people. And she was was saying to herself, why aren't these things coming to me? And she goes, you know what? I have to go get them. They're not going to just fall in my lap. You actually have to get up early and not sleep in and check your emails. You have to do the work, right? I mean, if you want to be successful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was lucky that it was a time where, you know, it, it was we were just getting taken seriously, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, you know, I do, you know, I think this, you know, we had to kind of adapt the mixologist word, even though most of us are like, we're just bartenders. We'll take them. We understand why we have to distinguish it because yeah. other people, it gives them context. Um, but, you know, there are good drink makers out there who are just mixologists, but having the complete picture of being able to actually 
engage and do, you know, teach people on the job, train, you know, other bartenders to be able to one, just do what you said, like that beauty and the magic of when it happens in the moment. Yeah. Um, you have to be a bartender first and then you can take it and, and go out there and put together on paper, you know, for mentorship purposes, I really believe how it happens and, and let other people come together. But there is also, there are some people who are really talented. They know how to bartend and put together, but they're not great drink makers. They just, they're not great at coming up with the concept. And those people have an amazing space. They're the people who, who will follow the recipe and do it, but they have personalities that are so engaging. And, you know, a lot of the people that I've seen now in that that way have found the other things that make them passionate, whether it's about, you know, starting other initiatives within hospitality mm -hmm. while bartending that mm -hmm. are helping the industry, um, you know, whether it's starting mental health and wellness, you know, uh, classes and all these things. Some people have both and are using both kind of skill sets, but it's just interesting to see uh, where people go or some of those people became business owners. And they're like, I was an okay bartender, but I love this industry. So I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to have a business and I'm going to hire talented people. Right. So it's a, it's, I think it's kind of like what I said earlier, there's so many different pathways in this industry, but I think that term mixologist, what it did help was give the broader, you know, consumer an understanding of how to, you know, how to understand the ele mm -hmm. that the industry had elevated. Elevated. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. We're, you know, so I think, and that's sometimes, you know, we saw, we saw the chefs kind of get there. And so it was kind of, you know, yeah. we kind of, you know, you'd go to all these events with, you know, celebrity chefs and they would always, they'd start doing these events and then they'd have bars there and there'd be bartenders. And we just had to kind of, you know, give it a, you know, adopt a name that's a very old name actually, and bring it back and then, and embrace it as, okay, people who are taking this path are saying we're doing this as our life career. Um, and then you see where people have gone off, like with that, with that skill set. Some people are, you know, corporate mixologists for big distributors. Mm -hmm. And they were people who were really good drink makers and take a bunch of ingredients, um, be like, all right, here's what you got, make a cocktail. And so those people have flourished in those places. So lots of different pathways, lots of different, um, you know, people have different goals and paths in this industry. And I think that's why it's so engaging because you can go so many different ways. I know when it changed for me when it comes to especially cocktails, good craft cocktails, the margarita and wanting lime juice <laughs> instead of sweet and sour mix. Was there a point, yeah. do you think, um, I mean, I know there was a point, but looking back, can you go, yep, that's when it all changed, where especially the consumer was demanding just higher quality in their cocktails? Yeah, I think it started once you saw restaurants adapting okay. this principle as much because then there was a broader um, breadth of, you know, mm -hmm. just people to market to. So mm -hmm. you had, you know, I mean, it's really like when you look at national accounts are really big businesses that have multiple chains and they've started to adapt some fresh juice. Now, you know, we're moving forward. Um, but I think, you know, I think it was those bars like Flatiron and then some of the restaurants that you saw you, and then you saw kind of going in waves all over the country, right. these bars were popping up and guests were getting exposed in these cocktail bars. Mm -hmm. And then they'd go to their restaurants and be like, why is my drink not as good as when I get at this bar and I'd like to have a cocktail before dinner that is made 
really well and has fresh juice. And so you had to, you saw the overall industry having to adapt to the craft cocktail bar. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm very happy to say that you, it's really hard to walk into a place that is doing high, you know, really good food and beverage without seeing their cocktail list. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a, it's great that that happened. And I think, you know, social media really helped. Um, so I think if I really kind of pin it, you know, started like Twitter was a big place where mm -hmm. a lot of articles are being shared. And then you'd have like message boards and consumers were start getting involved. But social media uh, was an opportunity to kind of give it light um, out in the world and people could see cocktails and share recipes. And that started, you know, I think making it so it's like, it's not that hard. Do you have a lime at home? You can buy a lime in a store. It really just squeeze it into your glass. Yeah. It's going to be 110 times better. Um, so I think that's kind of, I do think social media allowed it and it also allowed us as a community to um, expand our connections mm -hmm. globally. So that's where, you know, really was able to meet bartenders from all over the world and strengthen our community to this point. So I think that's kind of also something that yeah, that comes into play. This is so cheesy, but my husband and I used to watch, we were addicted to Bar Rescue. Uh, yeah. Do you remember that show with John Tapper? Oh, I do. I do do. I do remember it. <laughs> but and that was did, like, you know, well, it was education. It did. was education for us. Yes, education. And there's some, you know, some of the mentors on there are really good friends of mine. And I've known them for a long time and they do a great job. I just didn't respond well to the negativity because yeah. I'm really positive. So Same. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm like, do we, do we really need, you know, this Gordon Ramsay style ranting? And I know that that was kind of the time. And so yes. it was about, you know, and a lot of the stuff that we did with Speedwork was about being counter to that image, you know, yeah. like you can get a lot done by being positive with people mm -hmm. rather than being negative. So, but you know, it did serve a need and, and it's, it was hard too. I think that was one of the few shows on television that did talk about cocktails yeah and that's been a long battle or a long you know journey with cocktails in general because for a long time tv was very mm -hmm. afraid to mm -hmm. put alcohol on tv mm -hmm. you know, they're like oh i don't know about this thing and you're like it's just cooking with liquids so let's just get to that <laughs> point and you know so we you know we've been fighting we fought a long battle so it was one of the few things that got airtime um but i'm po optimistic and positive that you know the next round of things that will come up um, in those spaces will be more along the variety that you see on Food Network, where there could be so many different right. uh, ways of looking at, at beverage rather than just one approach. Fantastic. Yeah, I always thought that. Like, why so aggressive? Why are you shouting? Yeah. Like, just... Ratings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yes. I know I'm all very, very familiar with ratings. Um, so in the meantime, you're just kicking ass left and right. Let's talk about speed rack. How did this, how did this start? I think this is so, so freaking cool. So it started by kind of, it's, it's, you know, I, I obviously raised with, you know, in a house with four girls. Mm -hmm. So uh, female companionship in my life was very important. And that yeah. kind of was end up being a theme throughout my, other than my first job at, at the wine bar where I was like the only woman every other space I entered and probably because I was reaching out to those spaces, there was, uh, you know, a, a, lead, a, a female camaraderie. So I'd have right. either, you know, someone or a couple people that I would really, you know, want to build a community with. And that, you know, started 
Julie Reiner and then having mentors who, and so really looking for that mentorship. And so I decided in, well, wow, I guess it was like 2009, I started a group in New York um, called LUPEC, which is Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails. And they had started in 2001. It was a group of feminists in um, Pittsburgh who wanted to um, basically talk about, you know, feminist agenda, but they wanted to do it with classic cocktails. And the only places where they were that would, that made those drinks still were like the dirty old man bars, you know, like <laughs> the ones where they, the, with like the, you know, at that point, probably 50 year old bartender who remembers actually making those. It was drinks. called the branding iron, um, probably. For it, totally, something like that. So they would go into those spaces and and do that. And then that kind of inspired groups all over the country. And I met the, the group in Boston who uh, it ended up being um, a bunch of women who were working in hospitality. And so they kind of turned it towards more of like a hospitality group. And mm. it was so it was, it was great. And they were doing events um, in Boston that would raise money for local women's based charities. Uh, and so I, I was inspired by that. They put out a cocktail book that I saw at an event called Tales of the Cocktail. And I was like, this is great. This is a, such a great way to bring your community together and then also do other things that I'm really passionate about, which is, you know, community service mm -hmm. and helping others. So I was like, well, I can do this in New York. I got, why don't I just start a group and it'll help me bring the women that I don't, are not directly working with in all these other different bars together to basically take over spaces that are predominantly male and then do these events that will raise money for women's based charities. So we did that. And that started a recruitment process of, you know, when every time I would go into a bar and meet, you know, a talented woman working hospitality who I didn't know, I'd start inviting them to be a part of the group of like, are you looking for a community? Why don't you come join this? And awesome. so one of them was my partner, Ivy Mix, who I met, um, Met her, I like funnily enough, I met her when an old colleague from Flatiron Lounge asked me, like he had triplets who worked at his space and they were the other servers <laughs> and besides this one woman, Ivy. And so, but they all had a wedding or something to go to. So it was like the triplets are gone. So his staff of like fill-ins was Got it. depleted. So I, he asked me to fill in. I was like, yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore, but sure, I'll fill in and help. And Ivy was the other bartender, uh, the other server working, and she really wanted to, to break into New York craft hospitality, like craft bartending. And so I invited her to be a part of the group. And that led to, uh, you know, down the line, she and I, you know, were working together at a big festival. And the festival was completely being run by women bartenders. We were all literally in the kitchen at this festival. And it was a bunch of Lupec chapters from all over the country. We invited the women to come in and do all the prepping, batching, measuring out, making sure all the cocktails got to the seminars. Hmm. In exchange for that work, they got free passes to everything. So it was kind of this internship exchange um, that my friend Don Lee was like, do you want to bring the Lupec women? Let's give them an opportunity to kind of learn those skills, which is a big part of if you're going to do events, et cetera. And she was outside in a break with our friend Rachel Shaw. And uh, this film team, film crew came up and said, like, hey, uh, we're doing this little feature thing and we don't know any women bartenders. We can't find any. And she's, and she was sort of thinking to herself, well, they're all like actually making this entire festival happening. So they, they filmed her and she's like, well, they didn't know who I was. It was just super weird. And I was just going to been like a faceless woman. I was just the woman bartender right. for that moment. And so, you know, she came back, she's like, what else can we do that's more meaningful and on a bigger scale to keep promoting that there are, 
lots of women in this industry. They're just not being showcased and there's just no opportunity. So, you know, she kind of was like, oh, we should do something called SPIRAC and let's, you know, and the Lupec model, let's, you know, raise money for breast cancer research. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So we put together just because I do love those TV shows. So something that was kind of like our version of like a chopped meets, (laughs) you know, competition show on stage crazy fast bartending four drink rounds but based on classic cocktails because I think you know education is the most important part of advancement and so at that time we were really lucky in New York and certain centers like San Francisco if you're in the big cities you had opportunity to learn a lot more from from mentors who were there who people who were writing the books in New York it was everyone who wrote a cocktail book was living there coming into your bar so we were trying to get more of that education out there for more women bartenders across the country. And so we did, we started doing these events that were kind of like roller derby meets cocktails. It's yes. fast paced, crazy. And we would bring these mentors to, uh, to these women as judges. And so you would get firsthand critique from these legendary people that you're reading yeah. about in books. And that became the platform. And we ended up expanding that globally you know, we've raised over a million dollars uh, for really wonderful charities that we've highly vetted um, that are doing what the right kinds of things and believe in our same core values of women supporting other women and advancement and making sure that no one's being left behind in the conversation. And yeah, um, yeah we've, we've, it's just been insane. It's been, it's been great. You know, obviously this year we are grounded from yeah. being, doing events, but we've, you know, we've, been doing some things, uh, the Speed Rack Academy, we've been doing some kind of online cocktail classes with our competitors to give them access sure. and an opportunity to practice those skill sets, which are really important right now. Um, we're launching a mentorship program in the next uh, two months that is going to be a global mentorship program. We have over 80, um, oh, we have over 150, I believe, mm-hmm. applications, but we have over 80 mentors who are from the community. So that way we can keep that bond of you know, and they're from all over the industry, from everything from social media experts to PR, uh, to brand people. So that way, we're, we're trying to just kind of broaden that sisterhood, like, if, and, and that mentorship and that that community. So if we can't do it in person, we'll do it virtually and, and kind of hopefully develop something meaningful that comes out of all this that can continue. Yeah, so it's it's and then we'll get back to events and finish season nine where we have two events left for season nine. And and uh, so one is a mid-Atlantic regional and then our national finals. So we're, we're going to figure out how we can get our mid-Atlantic competitors. And then uh, we're, we're going to really push this year to do some sort of safe, uh, safe event where we can probably more focus on streaming it uh, rather than having our awesome crowds that come and enjoy and cheer on the competitors and help us raise a lot of money. I was just going to say, I want to go. So let's get this, let's get this rolling. Cause I want to go. They just look so fun and so lively and energetic and positive. Well, that's the thing. We were found a way to say, Hey, look at us. We're here in a way that brought everyone as a community to want to yeah. support and raise up the women. So, you know, we would get the, the male bartenders who were, famous in their, you know, communities would take a step back to push forward, Mm. you know, the women working in their bar, and you would see that kind of nurturing and it was great, because it it was, 
yeah, it does that. It's like we all have to help each other. We have to all push and raise if we're going to actually have diversity that um, is long lasting. Everyone has to be invested in it. And it became, you know, a great, you know, we, we became a recruiting ground. People would go and be like, I need more bartenders. And this mm. event has so many talented people we would never meet mm. if we didn't do it. So it has really become a big community. Um, so we're excited to get back to it. And there's just something sexy about a female bartender, right? You know, I was talking about it's there's fluidity. There's a lot of, you know, I think it's funny. I think a lot of the da- the bartenders who I know, uh, some of them were former dancers. So like, <laughs> whenever someone has a dance background, you're kind of seeing this beautiful arc, uh, male or female. I'm like, there's just also a grace to a grace. That's that what it pretty, is. Yeah. Pretty grace. And, and, you know, when someone isn't doesn't have if they're not super burly you know there's going to be a different way of achieving shaking a drink um you know and and you I always thought of it as choreography because Mm -hmm. everything has to be planned out so you know and I think what speed rack has taught our bartenders which I think a lot of the, the the guys started paying attention to was how how they would set up their well because they were working to shave off seconds and so you know the, these bar these women started you know teaching in their bar how to set up for a speed rack bar for everyone so yeah. it became a lesson for everyone in the bar of how to be efficient and make really good drinks and come out and you know i think our bars and restaurants you know like i said earlier they're communities so they need to reflect the community at large and i think that's where we're having this big conversation about diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think especially in hospitality, because it's it's a welcoming space for everyone. And mm-hmm. so your your teams and, and your, you know, staff should reflect that and have that that feeling that everyone feels welcome. And I think you start by who you hire and how you train everyone and the pathways you create for everyone to advance. Alcohol brings us all together. <laughs> One big happy Absolutely. family. Um, I, I want to, you're, you're actually going to, I think, make us a cocktail, but before we get there, because I do want to <laughs> ask you the common mistake people make at home when they're making cocktails. Uh, but before that, let's go into Masterclass, which we talked about sure. right at the beginning of this. Um, did they contact you? They did. So I came back from a trip in, to Israel with uh, this really amazing hospitality. Well, they're a really cool organization, but the trip I specifically almost for people in called Taste. And mm-hmm. so anyone across the entire field of hospitality, food and beverage, and came back and I had this, you know, email in my LinkedIn or connection in my LinkedIn. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but okay, is this legit? Here's my email. Let's talk. And And I did. I actually you know, started then researching the organi- the group and, you know, I saw their culinary classes and a lot of people that I really love watching because I mm-hmm. actually really love to cook. Um, and so it became this really great process of, you know, that they wanted to do a mixology class. Um, I was one of the two bartenders. Uh, Ryan um, Chetiwardena is the other bartender on there. He is a delight. And we knew we knew each other, but never worked together. He's mm-hmm. He had judged Speed Rack before and so it was great. Um, but we were kind of originally doing two very different classes. You know, I was like, all right, well, you know, we'd sit with the creative director and we'd talk to you like, what do you want to teach? I'm like, well, if this is the first class, there's so much to teach. Where do yeah. we start? Because we have to start with all the building blocks that I started with because you can't start, you know, if I just go out there and be like, you, you know, you can't go ahead and do a bread making class if you don't know how to bake like 
a muffin. You know, like you have to kind of start with, I know, okay, I got, I got it. Wet ingredients, dry ingredients, muffin. You'll move on to how starting your own sourdough and all of that. But let's right. start with this, like the simple, simpler things, right. That are more forgiving. And so I took that approach to cocktails. I'm like, well, there's just so much basic information that needs to happen. So my class was definitely geared towards a very, uh, the trajectory was learn the basic principles of building blocks of drinks because that is the biggest mm-hmm. part of success. And Ryan was going to be a little more, you know, like what he does, which is kind of the more a slightly molecular, but we both come from a love of food and foodie background. His mother was a chef and also is part of it. Like he's in business with his family. And so when we realized at the end of the day that we were both coming from the same place of like loving food and, and that mm. inspiring our journeys into cocktails, they, we just did one uh, day on the set and they're like, well, you're going to mix your classes because we're just going to show very quickly, like how you can go from here to here. Yeah. Um, and they created a really cool storyline and I love that they were so fluid with everything. And, you know, uh, it was probably one of the best professional experiences. I, they really listened to what we wanted to put in the drinks. There wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, overbearing of like, no, if you do not make, you know, the, one drink that everyone wants to make, then, you know, we're yeah. not going to do it. So there was no, like, here's the f- top five pending, trending cocktails. We need you to make it just so happened. We touched on those things because those are the gateway and, and, um, entry points mm-hmm. for people. Um, you know, I thought when Ryan chose to do a Cosmo, I was like, all right, Ryan's going to do a Cosmo. Where you go? <laughs> but he's going to do it in a way that you've never experienced it. So it was a very, uh, wonderful creative experience. And then, you know, obviously, our class, um, you know, in beta testing did really well. And then they launched, we launched March 5th, 2020. Yeah. So we were supposed to launch later in March, but already like the the desire, like who they beta test with, mm-hmm. they're like, okay, people want this class. So we got pushed up a few weeks early, which happened to be really uh, perfect timing because we launched before everything got really insane. And then we were able, people were finding us because we weren't, you know, I think if we would have launched on our actual launch date, which I think was the day, like they started evacuating New York, basically, yeah. uh, it would have been a weird time, but you know, we launched at a time that was good. And then people have, I've really made so many connections during quarantine, actually through masterclass, whether people are tagging, um, me and their cocktails they're making at home and on social Aww. or reaching out for little questions, book recommendations. Um, and so it's been a really great opportunity to be able to keep connecting. And and, and that's been so satisfy that need to one, educate and be yeah. a part of it. Uh, but it's been uh, very, very positive and, and the community is fantastic. And, you know, I keep seeing how many amazing instructors they bring on and I keep pinching myself I'm like, wait, I'm on the same platform as Issa Rae, what? <laughs> That gave me butterflies a little bit, just looking in your email and seeing something like that. Just, that's amazing. That's just very, very cool. And that's how I discovered you, honestly, was through Masterclass. So I'm sure a lot of people are learning about you. And if anyone is looking to find your class, I literally Googled your name, Lynette Marrero, and Masterclass, and boom, there you are. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it comes up. easy to find. It is. It was pretty, it was pretty great. And, and, you know, it became a really great opportunity for me during this time. Like I have done more classes than I thought I ever would. And, and, and kind of when you go back to like the skill sets that I was lucky enough to have was I'm like, Oh, entertainment. People are like, Oh, so you're just going to kind of talk to the group and they're going to be quiet. I'm like, it's fine. I can talk to a wall. We'll be okay. (laughs) I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to entertain them when they have questions. I'll tell them to come off. I'll field it. It'll be great. Not a problem. Like we'll be all right. So they don't know. They're like, 
that the acting, acting background. Exactly. You're like, all right, if they're not going to give me something back, I'm just going to keep filling time and talking to them more about the drinks. Cause sometimes, you know, that's, that's a bit of it too, is learn, you know, learning how to also then coax questions out of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have questions, but no one wants to ask stupid questions. So you don't have to get to that point of like, there's no stupid questions. Let me just tell you something that seems super basic that you might you want to know about. So I'm going to kind of take, tell you about it. So you're not like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I can talk to a wall too. I think I talk to myself all the time. I don't know if you do that. I think it's very helpful. Like absolutely. Sometimes why not like go for a walk, talk to yourself. It's kind of the things that like unlock for you. Uh, there's actually a, a few, they kind of talk about, there's like a couple of these, like, I believe it was, uh, I think it was an Israeli philosopher, someone who talks a lot about, and this happened at that reality experience, or like, you know, getting comfortable talking to yourself is, is kind of a really good way of like, you know, working things out. And I think yes. especially right now, I think we all kind of need ways to just kind of decompress and and find find those outlets. Mm-hmm. So whether it's meditation for some people, um, you know, whatever keeps you going for me, it's, it's keeping working, uh, it's keeping doing whatever I can, whatever initiatives I can do. Um, to keep this industry going, you know, I've been working with right. a lot of philanthropic groups. Uh, so I'm a board member of a group called the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, which we really took off during this time. You know, we were just about two years old when quarantine happened. Mm. And the mission that we set up for how we were going to tackle like our buckets of things to tackle within the industry just lined up at a time that was really important. So we were able to fundraise and get dollars mm. in hands of out of work hospitality workers then go into, uh, you know, we're launching a zero interest loan program to help um, small businesses come back um, and invest in those because we do believe there are places in our community that are important, um, especially for opportunities for lots of people to have a job. You know, it's one of the few careers you can get into and really take a lot of training on the job. So just kind of trying to find different ways to react and respond you know, translating lots of different uh, management resources into multiple languages so that we're not leaving anyone out of the conversation. So we've been doing a lot with that and just and making sure that, you know, we have an equitable future as a hospitality industry. So that's been uh, really important. And then with Speedrack, we've been, you know, doing different events, raising money, making sure that, you know, during this time, we're not forgetting, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people who are having a hard time are still being diagnosed with breast cancer and all these yeah. other issues have not gone away. So we've been working really hard to kind of keep some focus and light on those issues as well. Um, as, and obviously just keeping growing diversity and inclusion within our hospitality industry, within our, you know, very small set of craft bartending and making sure that that um, continues to grow and that we can use our platform to raise up other groups who are in need of similar where, you know, I think the, that very um, intersectional feminism that uses our platform to keep raising up um you know, other, other groups that, that really need support and need to, and need to kind of have the same kind of opportunities we created for ourselves. How do we keep creating that for others and bringing people along with you? So that's been a really uh, important time. It's so important. It's so incredibly important. So kudos to you and all of your pals who are doing this because it's so incredibly important. We're lucky to have you um, in all these communities. Uh, For the, for the mixologist wannabes at home, what's, (laughs) What's the common mistake they make? I think I have one answer, but are there several mistakes? <laughs> uh, there's several mistakes. I think the biggest one is, um, 
I think freshness, right, of ingredients. Okay. Or just thinking about the ingredients is one. You know, it, like I said earlier, it's not that hard to get a lime. Or if you're going to also get like the fresh lime juice that's not really a fresh lime juice, learning how to use that ingredient. So balance, okay. um, measuring. I mean, I, I think it's great to kind of free pour your drink, but learning balance <laughs> like any other recipe, you know, is it's complicated. Like get yourself a jigger or a good set of teaspoons. You know, every... Every tablespoon is a half ounce. You can use your kitchen ingredients um, to build cocktails. Because um, I think, you know, it, you start with the whole like, oh, I'm just going to pour a little here, a little there. And then you're over adjusting. I think it's really important to understand the basics and then you can play around, right? Then, okay. you know, things you can mess around with are what kind of bitters you want to put in there. Um, you know, also being inspired by um, just the things you like to cook, are, I think, are a really great place, you know. You have lots of things in your cabinet that you probably don't even think about using in a drink, teas. There's, you know, you probably have that jar of honey that never goes bad that you could take and turn that into a sugar source. So if you want to make it old fashioned, you're like, I don't have any sugar. Oh no. And you're like, okay, well I have honey. Um, just kind mm. of playing that idea of like using what you have. Um, and that will teach you balance. And I think that's why I'm, I, I stick with a measurement ingredient because, you know, sweet, sour, is real is something really important to measure yeah. and understand that building block uh, when you are uh, making cocktails. So I kind of just have something to measure with, and and it doesn't have to be ounces. You can do parts, you know. Like so, if you don't have something that has markings, use you know anything that you're like I'm gonna put two parts or okay. one part okay. of something. So that way you can just think in proportions, but you're still measuring in some way um, to keep your cocktail in balance. So I was gonna say, if you're doing a mixed cocktail, not putting enough ice in the shaker. <laughs> no? Yes? Uh, that is, well, you're just addressing dilution in general, right? Right. So diluting your cocktail is a part of balance, okay. right? When to shake, when to stir. Do not do not shake your drinks that are supposed to be stirred. So just easy for you. It's if it has citrus, shake it. If it doesn't have citrus, don't shake it. Stir it. Simple oh, rule. That's Let's start, great. We could start there. And that's like a basic rule. Uh, and then you're right. Like it, And it's how much ice maybe, but also more so um, how, how you're diluting that ice. So if you have, you know, like I have large cubes you know, as okay. I keep my fridge. Yep. So I have to use a little bit more of this ice to break it down. But if I was using kind of like the normal kind of half moon mm -hmm. ice that you get in a normal ice tray, I don't have to put as much, but I do have to shake it nice and vigorously. So that way I get the water on to incorporate into the drink because you're trying to basically incorporate all those ingredients of different weights and different, you know, uh, volumes mm -hmm. to come together into one cohesive drink. Yeah, that's interesting because it is dilution, right? Because a lot, mm -hmm. of, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want I'm not supposed to have water in there. It's not supposed to melt that much, but that actually is what helps balance, right? Exactly. Okay. Like you built, you, you've had like that drink, you know, you put a little bit of ice, you go, Ch -ch, and then you pour it over. It's Blech. not mixed at all. You know, it needs to be mixed and, and mixed vigorously. Um, it should be alive. Cocktails, you know, live and change. So it should be very bright. Okay. So were you going to make something for me? Virtually? I am. So I'm going to... I'm going to virtually make, so I just kind of, right now, I'm super inspired by the fact that it is citrus season yes. in the U.S., so um, you're going to get, right now is your time, you're going to get the most beautiful Meyer lemons, mm -hmm. blood oranges will have a tiny season, so you'll get them all. Um, so what I like to do is make my own lime cordial or lemon cordial or citrus cordial. So what I do is when I'm making my cocktails with the fresh juice, before I juice them, I just use like my normal vegetable peeler, take the peels off, and then I soak those 
um, into sugar and, and muddle them and let them kind of reduce mm. down. And then I'll add um, a little bit of water and then actual lime juice. So I have like a, a kind of a, a an what do you say enriched lime yeah. juice, but it's, it has sweetness in it already. But when you smell it too, it has oh. zest, and that zest has that beautiful aroma. And so for me, this is kind of a nice ingredient. So if you're we're talking about earlier keeping fresh citrus or not, yep. this can hang out in your fridge and give you citrus aromas. So you once you make it, you know, label it. It'll last for at least a month, um, and then you have a source. So I'm using this quite differently. So when I use my lime cordial, I use about half ounce um, of it in my drink, but I don't add extra sugar. Right. Because this has sugar, this has some citrus. Um, and then I'll, you know, if I have it, I'll throw a splash of fresh um, citrus juice as well. But what I'm going to make today is just a very simple kind of elevated um, tequila sour. So this okay. is kind of like our margar our version of margarita. So just a little half ounce of our um, lime cordial. Actually, I'm going to make it three quarter because I'm not going to use fresh lime juice. I'm going to actually uh, top it with tonic. Oh. And then I'm going to go ahead and add, it's early. So I, I go for when I want a lighter kind of tall highball drink, I do an ounce and a half. Okay. So a normal margarita, I would do two ounces on the rocks. Um, because I'm going to make this a long drink in that highball style, I like to use an ounce and a half. So it's going to be a little bit lighter on the tequila, but you'll have all the flavor. This is the coolest thing ever. I'm just gonna throw that. This is so cool. Give that a nice shake. So I made it nice and alive. So that that shake, as you just saw, bringing lots of flavor. Yeah, wake it up. Don't put it to sleep. Exactly. That's the best quote from Emily. Such a good so quote. I'm going. To, it's a great quote. So I'm gonna put some ice there. I'm gonna strain this into the glass to kind of help. I'll pull that. You notice, so my glass is only about a half full. Right. I have to get the ice down a little bit, which so the rest is going to be filled with our, and you can use soda or tonic. I'm using tonic because I like to have a little bit of that bitter quinine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you choose to use soda instead, you can add some bitters. Uh, so I have a grapefruit and hot bitters from Bittered Sling. So I'm gonna put a couple dashes in there. Um, and this is gonna bring another. So now I'm thinking like Paloma, all those yes. hot flavors coming in uh, and then I'm gonna use our tonic and my, this tonic has a, is a wild botanical tonic. So you can kind of go with something citrusy, go with something a little bit more um, bright and fresh. I'm gonna have to get this open real quick. Oh, well, hold on a second there. One minute. This is when you don't get your mise en place set in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have your mise en place fully set in the bar. I did think this one was a twist top. All right, so I'm putting my tonic in here. And then okay. when I'm pouring my tonic or my soda, um, you know, you could also sub ginger beer here if you want. Ooh. I just wanna make sure I give it a nice stir um, to make sure that I'm mixing it. So you don't wanna have all the, you know, the layers, right? And this drink, I don't want layers. I want you to enjoy all the flavors and aromas together. So just mixing that together so you have some of those flavors. And then I'm gonna go ahead and garnish that with a simple citrus twist. Um, on top just to get that aroma and flavor. So I'm going to do that. They're super fragile little citrus. So I'm gonna head and just do a little twist. And when you're doing the twist, you want the, you know, the, the bumpy side towards your glass and you okay. just squeeze it and there's oils. And that then 
invites their flavors and aromas. So just this is just a nice, tall, refreshing highball with your citrus cordial. Mm. Play around. Get Meyer lemons. Get whatever's yeah. in the market. Um, buy the clementines. All those kind of things. You can turn anything into this basic cordial citrus cordial and then use it across different drinks. I love it. I'm swooning right now. Swoon. I'm <laughs> swooning. That was so much fun. Um, and you're right. It is citrus season. So this is a great time to play around with mixing drinks, shaking up drinks, because you shake if it has citrus is what I've just learned. Um, Absolutely. And that, and that to me is the, just a simple way to bring in fresh. Yeah. Do you have a fave? We, I want to wrap up a little bit. Um, do you have a fave booze, a favorite? Oh, it's like choosing... <laughs> Choosing between lots of different amazing friends, like who's your bestie out of it. Um, I know the most about rum, and I think you okay. know I do appreciate rum. James Beard, you know, the famous quote that he had about rum was that of, of all the liquors in your cabinet, rum is the most romantic. <laughs> and so what oh. I take from that is that, you know, rum is about where it's from. It really does terroir. It's yeah. so diverse. You know, you have like you know, grassy, tangy rums from like Jamaica and rum agricoles are really bright and tangy. But then you have, you know, aged rums that have been rested um, for a longer period of time that drink more like whiskey or cognac. So there's so much variety within that one category. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I know the most okay. about it. I tend to use it. Uh, I really love uh, enjoying uh, mezcal. Um, as well. So if I'm sipping something, I'm a big fan of mezcal and they don't, they're not all smoke bombs. So really when you get into what, um, you know, the different varieties of the agaves, and I think, again, it goes back to a theme. I'm interested in some, in a product that has multiple expressions mm -hmm. over uh, many things. Um, but you know, I am, my dive bar drink is a gin and soda with two limes. So, you know, <laughs> I kind of I go it. across. But that's I love it. I just recently discovered in a local fantastic Mexican restaurant, Tajin, on oh, the, yeah. on your rim for like a margarita with mezcal in it. Oh man, yep. that's changed my life. And it has a little citrusiness to it, so that's great, like playing around with different salts. Uh, that's another thing you can do with your um, your your citrus right now. Mm -hmm. If you have the peel of something, I, I zest the um, peel off of it, and then I bake it with some kosher salt, and then I have a citrus salt. Um, I just made one the other day with a, a citrus that was sent to me called Etrog, which is a super fragrant um, lemon-like citrus that's used a lot in, in fragrances, and it's from Israel. And I was like, this is the coolest lemony thing I've ever seen. So I made an Etrog salt, and then now and then I took the rest of it, and it's infusing into some um, base spirit to make a uh, tincture. So lots oh. of different things to do. Well, that, you're so cool. You're so cool. Um, I just really like what I do. Yeah, I can I'm really tell. Lucky to, oh my gosh, like Peter I can... Pan. You know, you get your yep. real, your real job. If you get the job that you love, you never really have to grow up. You're just playing forever. <laughs> it's great. That's a beautiful philosophy. But yeah, I mean, you can absolutely one thousand percent tell you love what you do. Before we get to the final three, you said you love to cook. I have to ask you, what's your favorite thing to cook in the kitchen? Because I love to cook myself. Oh. Uh... I have to say during quarantine, it's been my mastering of all sorts, every soup, every kind of soup or stew. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I said, it comes back from my mom taught me when I was growing up for sofrito, which is like our version of kind of like a flavor bomb. Yeah. And it's, you know, I pulled together all like cilantro, garlic, onion. I could throw that in everything's magic. Um, I really started enjoying doing um, whole fish Ooh. a lot too. So that idea of baking uh, something and adding flavors, I mean, it's, 
again, food, I go, I have, I don't think I've made, my husband's like, I don't think you've repeated a meal this whole time. Like I have, I've just changed them enough that you haven't noticed. Cause I keep, like, <laughs> I won't just make the same. I'm not a recipe person when it comes to food. Yeah. I'm like sort of the opposite. I read a recipe and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to change it and make my own way. So a bit of a, I take some of that philosophy in a drink yeah. making, but I'm like, but first learn the principles, learn the balance, that core recipe, and then add things to it. So Perfect. Um, I was, I did the same thing yesterday. I'm not a recipe person, but the recipe said six cloves of garlic or an onion. And I'm like, why would you ever, or it's always and. Yeah, that's an and. <laughs> always. For sure. Always. That's always an and. <laughs> okay. Lynette, uh, let's get to the final three. Best okay. advice you've ever been given. Uh, be accountable. Do what you're do what you're gonna like. If you say you're gonna do it, follow through. Okay, I like it. Do you know who gave you that? Did you give that to yourself? No, I think it was just kind of like something I learned just along mm -hmm. the line that um, you know a few people have basically they're like you say you do what you say you're gonna do, and I'm like, well, that is the best advice. Continue on that path and follow through. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, what's your happy place? Uh, my happy place is probably having a Negroni while I'm making dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'm getting ready in that moment because that's my thinking time, like looking through the fridge, what I'm going to do, and the Negroni is perfect. I, my, you know, I've taught my husband to make it. It's equal parts. I'm like, all yep. right, get the Negroni going. I'm going to put on a big ice rock. It can sit while I'm kind of yep. floating around. So I'm a Boulevardier <laughs> girl. Negroni. Perfect. I love a that good template Boulevardier. template to me, yeah, the template for the, the, that's part of the Negroni family tree, which is another topic, but Perfect drink. And yeah. Campari. Oh, Campari is just so <laughs> delicious. Okay. We could talk about booze, I think, forever. Uh, if you were given a final meal and a final drink, what would that look like? Oh, uh, it's probably a baller omakase sushi. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> so got, for sure. This yep. happens a lot. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. We're low battery on this end, but we're good. We're good to go. Got it. So uh, a beautiful omakase sushi experience where, like, I can taste the cut that the chef has picked is melting mm. in my mouth. Uh, and I'm going to have with that probably a perfect 50-50 martini with an olive and a twist. Okay. Very specific. You're my, <laughs> you're my kind of woman. I like that. Um, <laughs> if you liked this uh, demonstration that Lynette just gave to us, you can find out more um, with her master class. You can find that online. You can also watch this podcast at ktvl.com and on YouTube. Just search off script with Trish Glose, and you can listen to it wherever you like to listen to podcasts. One more time, uh, Lynette Moreto, award-winning bartender, mixologist, and philanthropist. You've taught me so much. You're just a super cool chick, and I'm just so glad you exist in this world. Oh, thank you. This has been great. Thanks for taking time to chat about so many things that I haven't thought about in a while. So oh, cool. cheers and have a great day. <laughs> yeah, cheers to you for sure.